Welcome to On the Mathematical Frontline, a special series of the PLUS podcast. My name is Rachel Thomas. The Mathematical Frontline podcast is about the mathematicians who have been grappling with the unprecedented challenge of studying a live pandemic unfolding in front of their eyes. In this podcast series, we interview our colleagues in the Juniper Modelling Consortium, whose research and insights have fed into the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Group, otherwise known as SPIM, and the now familiar SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, both of whom have advised the UK government on the scientific aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. For this episode, we're really pleased to catch up with Matt Keeling, one of the co-founders of Juniper alongside Julia Gogg. Matt is a professor at the University of Warwick, where he's also the director of the Zeeman Institute for Systems Biology and Infectious Disease Epidemiology Research, otherwise known as SPIDER. Last year, he was awarded an OBE for his work on COVID-19. Among other things, Matt's research group has been running one of the main models to project the course of the pandemic and inform government policy, especially on the roadmap out of lockdown that was implemented last year. My colleague Marianne Freiberger talked to Matt over Zoom and started off by asking him what he did before the pandemic hit. So I've worked on mathematical modelling for about 25 years now. So my initial training was in mathematics, um, but I've sort of gradually moved into doing things more and more public health facing, more and more applied. Um, So I've been involved in pandemics and outbreaks for at least the last 25 years so going back to sort of the 2001 foot and mouth outbreak and also the um, swine flu outbreak for example as well as sort of other sort of endemic infections so I've, I've done a lot of work on infectious diseases. So then this is I imagine how you naturally became involved in the COVID response then? Yeah so I sit on two committees so I'm part of SPIM which is Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Group. So that's the one that sort of coordinates things and has been sort of sending all the model results through to SAGE. But I'm also part of JCVI, which is the committee that decides on sort of vaccination policy. Um, so it's sort of as, as part of those two, really, it, it sort of led me into sort of working on COVID. And, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that, you know, everyone's glad to work on in a way because you feel you're doing something useful with, with your skills. So, yeah. So you've you've had a prominent role in advising the government. What is that like? Or can you tell us a little bit more about what you did there? It's it's interesting. I mean, as I said, it's it's nice to feel that you're doing something that's that's positively useful. I mean, we have to understand that you know we are only providing advice we're only providing sort of forecasts of what we think may happen under different scenarios so it's not as if we're sort of telling the government what to do we're just sort of weighing the pros and cons of various sort of factors going forwards but it's it's always nice i think when you're doing something that that feels like it is having an end goal and that end goal is also quite immediate um it's also quite shocking when you're doing work and you're suddenly watching the news and your graph pops up and you go, oh, oh, that one's one of mine. So, um, 
yeah, it's it's been interesting sort of being a bit more in the limelight with what we've been doing rather than more of the sort of back of the scenes, just producing sort of classic sort of academic papers. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of pressure involved. So, you know, sometimes it's we need answers by tomorrow, if not yesterday. Um, but it's it's also been, you know, we've we've learned a lot through it, I think. And I think a, a lot of us have now got a much better understanding of, of how that scientific advice goes through the government channel. So before this, you know, my my understanding stopped at sort of spy M and what happened there. But I now have a bit better understanding of what happens with SAGE and how that then communicates onwards and upwards through the, the, the government sort of food web, really. So, yeah, it's, it's been it's been really interesting. Mm -hmm. And from that experience, have you learned any lesson on how to best communicate your results? Oh, communication, I think, is, is hard. And I think it's one of the things I could have probably done better. I think quite a few of us could have done better through the pandemic. Um, I think we we had the problem that a lot of us were were working all hours we we'd got trying to actually get the work done, which means that you don't have time to spend communicating the science as much as you'd like to. So you know, I actually enjoy talking about the science, but when you've been you know when you've just done a, a twelve hour day and you've worked all weekends, you really don't want to go on news night and talk for another hour on what you've just done. So. I think it's very difficult to, to do that, that public communication well, I think. I think what's important going forward, I think, is that we've got to be careful that we only communicate the science and don't really stray into policy. So it's, you know, there's, there's, it's very easy to go from this is what my scientific results say to someone going, this is what I think the government ought to do. And I don't think we're, we're ever in a position to do that because we haven't got all the information. We're only looking at one side of the picture. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of it is explaining things very, very carefully. Um, just realising how much extra information we have compared to the general public and just taking things very, very slowly and steadily and, and trying to explain, you know, where the results come from and, and what the limitations are as well. And I think limitations are always going to be an important factor and something else that's hard to communicate. Together with uncertainty, you know, we're, we're always uncertain in our projections. Trying to explain what that means to the lay person, I think, is quite, is quite a challenge. So let's talk about the science then. Um, can you describe what you did during the pandemic? Oh, what have we done? Well, I, I look back and I found out last year we did 31 papers. So it's it's a it's a bit of a smorgasbord of, of different things. So we did a lot, I mean, most of 2000 and and oh, sorry, most of 2020 was involved with just thinking about sort of what was happening on almost a day-by-day -day basis. Um, and then, you know, throughout that, we were doing the sort of the R calculations to try and work out whether or not the pandemic was increasing or decreasing. That really led into late 2020 when we started thinking about the vaccine. So we were all quite surprised how quickly the vaccine came around. You know, 
phenomenal amount of work that went into that to actually produce a vaccine in such a short time scale. Uh, so a lot of sort of work thinking about the vaccine and thinking about how that interacts with other measures. So you know, just because we're vaccinating everyone doesn't mean you can suddenly you know, allow everyone to mix freely because that will lead to a big epidemic. But how do you sort of move between that situation of you know, having to do fairly strict lockdowns to keep the pandemic under control to being able to open up and give people freedom and how do you sort of make that balance um, so a lot of it has been with quite detailed complicated models um, which we use to try and project what's going to happen going forwards but then we've also sort of implemented that with other sort of simpler more intuitive things when we've thought about for example, you know, what should the delay be between first and second dose of vaccine and how does that sort of um, impact things? There we were dealing with much, much simpler models because it was a simpler type of problem in a way. So, yeah, um, lots of things, really. And then we've looked at sort of schools. So schools has been a big um, push that we've had within Warwick and within Juniper. Just thinking about, you know, how do we protect youngsters? What's, what's likely to happen? Um, and, and sort of their risks. Um, yes, so lots and lots of different things, really. You did these roadmap papers as well, where you, where you used your model at various stages throughout 2021, it was mostly, wasn't it? Um, yeah. to, to try and project what's going to happen and to inform policy through that. So, so what was the purpose of these papers? Because it's very tempting to look at them as a forecast, as in this is going to happen. Um, but that's not quite what it is. Can you describe? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, almost everything we do is, is really sort of taking it as a scenario. So, yeah, assuming a set of, um, or taking a set of assumptions for what we think is going to happen what does the, 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 the pandemic look like and how does it sort of play out? So we did these working very closely with SPIAM and SAGE to try and look at the different roadmaps. So we had steps one to four in the roadmap, which took us from the lockdown in January of 21 all the way through to there being no restrictions on social gatherings, um, which finally happened in sort of July. But really, it was to think about that as a series of step changes, and there was four of them. And so each time we were coming up to one of these, we had to sort of use the model with all the latest information we knew and try and work out what we thought was going to happen at the next step and all the other ones as well. And um, to a large part, some of these were, were I won't say, slightly educated guesses, really. So certainly when we were coming to the first step, and it was going to be relaxation of various things. So there was going to be more, um, more shops were going to be able to open or, you know, what happens when pubs open? Well, it's very difficult to pin it down and say that's going to have, you know, 27.5% increase in this. So you can't do that. You just have to sort of go with, a, well, looking at last time these, these you know, the shops were open, last time the pubs were open, we were in this type of scenario and there was this much transmission going on. So we were basing it on historical things, but to a large extent, these are sort of educated guesses informed by history rather than being able to give a definite number to them. So, you know, so it was really a scenario, you know, given shops were open, that's going to mean X percent more transmission going on. This leads to 
whatever our projections were. But we also had to for, we also had to sort of blend in the vaccine that was happening at the time because vaccine rollout was was happening. So you've got two factors that are, that are trading off against each other. The, the vaccine was pushing cases down, but then relaxing control measures was allowing them to increase. And it was really about trying to um, model the blend of those two. Um, so I think, yeah, early on, I think we, we were doing relatively well. I mean, it, the, the, the work sort of in the media has been criticised for always being too pessimistic. Actually, I don't think it has. If you look, we were we were above as often as we were below with our projections. So I think we were we were almost sort of 50-50 on those. Um, and I think that the most difficult one was roadmap four, where it was the question of, you know, are we going to remove all remaining restrictions? And Delta had just come in at the same time, and we had no idea. I mean, there was some very, very sparse data about how well the vaccine would protect against Delta. Um, which was sort of coming out of uh, PHE as it was then, um, which looked quite pessimistic, really. I mean, it didn't look like the vaccine was going to give that much protection against Delta. It actually turned out that it gave more in the long run once more data was, was analysed. Um, but I think that, that was probably the most difficult one. And then once we'd sort of gone through that and we were thinking about it because they, they delayed step four simply because of the uncertainty. And this is again, a question, not really of the projection saying it would be definitely bad, but just saying we can't be certain. There's too many unknowns in all of this. So it could be really bad or it could not be. And we just didn't know at the time. So I think when we came on to the looking at it from the delay, so once it had been delayed, I think we'd got a much better understanding. And we also were able to think about much more of the uncertainty in what the behaviour was going to be. Because by then we'd really realised that just because you open pubs or you let people go to the shops doesn't mean that everyone's instantly going to go back to the, their behaviour. And, you know, I'm saying that and it sounds blatantly obvious, but actually no one picks it up at the time because everyone goes, oh, well, you know, you're open the pubs, everyone go to the pubs. Well, actually they don't. It takes weeks or months before everyone starts relaxing and trying to think about what those timescales are, I think, was was also very important with all of this. Mm. So we were starting to bring some of the behavioural aspects into all of this information. So when the next pandemic comes around, hopefully not so soon, but you never know, um, what would be the main lessons you carry over from this one and what would you perhaps most like to have in place? Oh, I think I think one of the things I think one of the most important things is, you know, you can never you don't want to take the information from this pandemic and try and translate it into the next one. So this pandemic has very much been a disease of, of the elderly and the vulnerable. The next one could hit children much harder. It could be a different cross section of the population. There could be all sorts of differences that happen. And I think we don't want to be too ingrained in what we've learned in this pandemic for the next one. Um, so I, I can always remember, so I did a lot of work on the, the 2001 foot and mouth outbreak. And we we're all talking about what the next big wildlife uh, livestock problem was going to be. And I said, well, one thing you can say is it won't be foot and mouth. 
Well, actually it was because we had another foot and mouth outbreak a few years later, which was sort of much smaller, but you know, it, it's this sort of thing. You all, you know, you can't make predictions about the next pandemic before it hits. You can have the models in place. You can have some of the ideas in place, but I think trying to sort of, you know, set, you know, almost formulate a set of rules at this point is very, very dangerous. Um, I mean, it's clear that if you give the public the right information, they'll try and respond as well as they can. Um, it's clear that you need very, very good and detailed information on any vaccine that's available, and that's, that just takes time to deliver. So I think some of it is, is lessons about how you communicate just the delays in the system to policymakers. So the fact that, I mean, when we're doing these roadmaps, we have five weeks between each one, and actually that's five weeks of intensive work to get the next one ready, because you're having to look at the data as it comes in try and work out what this means, update the models ready. And, and then even when you get there, you've got a delay between what you're seeing in infection and what's actually happening with sort of hospitalizations and, and possibly deaths as well. So you've got all these delays in the system, which means that it's very, very difficult to do these very rapid turnarounds of, of projections. Um, so I think being able to communicate that type of thing. And I think there's probably a lot that we could do early on with a sort of epidemiology 101 for politicians, you know, explaining what an exponential growth looks like. And I mean, you know, we all work with exponential growth and we're all really, really used to it. And we're still amazed at how fast things take off. You know, it's going, it's slow, it's slow, it's slow. Oh my God, it's taken off everywhere. And even though, you know, as I said, I've been working on this 25 years, the, the fact of how fast exponentials just take off at the end is always sort of really, really amazing. So I think there's a lot of things that we, we could sort of, we need to be thinking about putting in place for the next pandemic. Now, given that even you, you say it's still surprising when you see it happening in front of your eyes, even though you've worked on it for 25 years. So what was the most striking thing for you personally through all of this? I think I've, I've learned a lot. I think really, I think the vaccination has probably been the most striking thing, just how complex it is to capture that in a really, really succinct way. So, you know, the simple mathematical models put everyone who's vaccinated into a V class and that's it. And very often you just assume they're all, they're all sort of resistant. So going from that very caricature of, a, of, of the process to actually thinking about what vaccines do for COVID in the real world, where they give limited protection against infection, but better protection against severe disease there's waning in there, there's the interactions between different vaccines at different times with different variants, and just trying to build all that complexity and I think has probably been the most striking thing from a sort of mathematical point of view. Um, I think sort of, you know, that, that, that's probably been the, the, the thing, but, you know, also just the speed with which the vaccine was rolled out, I think was was amazing and the fact that the uptake was so high as well in the early stages so you know we were all thinking if we got to 60 70 percent uptake we'd be doing really really well it'd be like flu and actually 
to see age groups that are in 95 percent and above uptake is absolutely fantastic so i think that's been quite striking as well mm. can can you predict even how the vaccination is going to continue i mean are we going to require boosters my I mean, we don't really know. I mean, there's there's a lot of talk about this and we, you know, we are doing some of the research into this, but I think we're probably going to need boosters most winters. I think this is, we're not going to get rid of COVID. This is going to be something like, I say like flu, but I don't want to sort of take that too literally, but, you know, it's going to be something that we need to protect the vulnerable people against every winter. Um, and so certainly for the next few years, I think we're going to have to be thinking of, boosters to the elderly age groups in sometime you know September to November we don't quite know what the season's going to look like for COVID so is it going to be at the same time as flu or is it going to be earlier or later and it could be either you know it's it's, it's difficult to know that until we start seeing the data coming through um, we are noticing that a lot of people are getting reinfected so you know reinfection's relatively common so it's not as if once you've had it you're not going to catch it again so concepts like herd immunity start breaking down um, and so I think we are going to end up in a situation where we're going to have to do repeated regular vaccination but probably just for the most vulnerable groups I think yeah. it's going to be a bit like the spring booster that we've got at the moment right um, yeah. yeah do you think it's a problem that at least I mean here in the UK at least compared to some other countries there is definitely a feeling now that it's over um, do you think that's a problem? Yeah, I think it depends who you talk to as to whether or not you think it's over. I know enough people that, that are catching it and feeling really ill with it that who really, really don't think it's over. I, I would think most of the people in the vulnerable age groups and, and yeah, either with health conditions or of a certain age are probably still quite wary. And so, you know, the idea of just going and getting another booster, it's not that much of a problem compared to the the risks associated with with catching covid even if they've had it before um so i hope we're going to keep with moderately high uptake it looks like the the uptake for the spring boosters looking good it's comparable to what we've seen um for the the, the first booster um so i'm i'm hopeful but obviously you know as, as time goes on we may have sort of less less uptake it's it's difficult to know at the moment it certainly hasn't gone away and i think i don't think many people are that complacent about it and certainly not the ones that are vulnerable um okay finally really so on the whole how has all of this impacted you personally yeah i mean it how's it how's it impacted me personally i i've spent most of the last two years in a, a two meter by two meter box um you know so you know i haven't been to work i've been working from home um so vast i mean the amount of work i've done in the past two years has probably been more than i've done in like 10 years normally it's it's been an awful lot of work um it's been nice to think that you're doing something that that is really impactful um, but there's also an enormous amount of pressure on everybody to, to get things right. Um, so, you know, it's not like when you normally do a paper, well, if you make a mistake in a paper, you can correct it later. And, or, you know, if you need another couple of weeks to get it right, it doesn't matter. Uh, whereas this is, is very much at shorter timescales. Um, 
so yeah that's been that's been sort of problematic but there's there's been good points as well you know so some of the people that i've got to work with with as part of the juniper consortium has been absolutely brilliant and just seeing everyone pull together um talking to people on sage has been really good um i had a a one-to-one -one at one point with um Anthony Fauci in the US, which was which was really nice. So there's been things like that that you think, oh wow, you know, and, and I was privileged to get an OBE for some of the work. So, you know, there's things like that that have been really nice and have been highlights of it, but there's also been, you know, a lot of, of, of angst and banging my head against a wall when your code doesn't work or when the data comes through in a slightly different format and you haven't realized. So yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's been a challenge and it's been hard work. But there's been parts of it that, you know, if it wasn't for the loss of life, some parts of it would have been enjoyable because, yeah. you know, you, you are working as a team, you're doing something useful. But then, you know, you are always thinking, you know, I've got to get these decisions right because it, it's so important for things as you sort of move forwards. And, you know, it, it's not just getting it right for people's lives. It's also people's livelihoods as well. So you don't want to be too far in either direction. And, you know. While I'm not making the decisions, and I'm really glad I don't have to make the decisions, you want to put the right information in front of the people who are. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's all right. That's it for this episode of On the Mathematical Frontline from the PLUS podcast. To find out more about the work of Matt Keeling, as well as the other members of the Juniper Consortium, go to plus.maths.org forward slash juniper. Thanks for listening and bye bye. <laughs>